Sketches from Scripture presents Light in the Darkness, a teaching series from the stories of Genesis. Light in the Darkness is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the narrative structure and style of the book of Genesis as context for better understanding of Scripture. This will help us trust more in these scriptures by demystifying them, taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events in real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast scatters your darkness and makes the great light abundant in your life. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com, find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. I may have some friends watching this that maybe aren't Christian or they're skeptical or maybe even thinking of leaving the faith or they're backing off from the faith or maybe you're part of the Christian faith that doesn't hold the scripture in very high regard. You know, there's some good things in it, but there's just written by people or whatever. Well, I, I hope that this study of Genesis will show you there's some real power in the story. And I hope that'll make you think about why that might be and who might be behind that. And I hope our time together, our study together, uh, will just bring you some peace and uh, get your mind off maybe some other things that are going on. So before we um, do a, a rundown and a review, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about when you think of Genesis, what are like the top five characters that you think of? So they're real people, and these things really happen as real events, but it's, it's told to us in story form. So it's still a story. So in thinking of it as a story, we can think of those real people, we can think of them as characters. They are uh, characters within that story that have a role, and they have dialogue, and they have action, and that's all part of the storytelling process. So when I use the word character, please understand, these are real people. These are real people in history. They're historical persons. These things really happen. But we're, we're looking at the storytelling aspect of Genesis. That's the main gist of this class. So when you think of Genesis, what are the top five characters that you think of? I'm going to guess Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph. These are probably your top five. These are the vacation Bible school. These are the people we cover, right? When you think of Genesis, those are the five that you think of. Over the next two nights, we're about to see why none of those are the main character in Genesis. You're probably thinking, well, of course, God is the main character in Genesis. In some respects, yes, God is certainly the, the overarching uh, character, the overarching person that we need to come to know and love. But um, if you remember back to high school English class, and you remember talking about you know protagonists, um, the protagonist or the, the main character or the hero is the one who goes through a change, right? And God doesn't change. God never changes. God is God, right? So in a story form, you have characters that sort of go through a change. And so who, well, who might be the main character of Genesis? Who's the character of Genesis that 
really goes through a change. And we'll we'll come back and we'll talk about some of that uh, a little later. It sounds a little provocative, but I think once I lay it out for you, I think it'll make perfect sense. So let's do a little review very quickly. Genesis uh, begins, God's word separates light from darkness. God's word creates light from nothing and separates it from darkness. And every story after that is... Um, the light coming in and being made abundant and the darkness scattering. Every single story from there on out is about that. Genesis 1 through 11 is about the creation of the cosmos and sort of the beginning of everything, the beginning of all things. And it really drills right down from the creation of the cosmos down to this one man, Abram, with this idea that the Lord can speak to us individually, one person, that we can have one, a one-on-one personal relationship with God. Early chapters of, of the Bible. We're finding God having personal relationships with people. Not a New Testament idea. Right here in the first chapters of Genesis. We talked about the idea of holiness. The word holy not really appearing here. But the concept is very much here. This Holy just means set apart for a higher purpose. Set apart. And so when you see light separated from darkness, that's what's happening. Is that light is holy and everything else has got to scatter. We also see the recurring theme of the family of God. So those guys that we just mentioned, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, these are all part of the family of God. There's lots of other people, lots of other characters in the story. We'll meet even more as we go on um, through the last part of Genesis over the next couple of nights. But we're really concerned with sort of that family of God and sort of watching that take place. And the overriding theme in everything is the same over and over again. Remove yourself from the wicked world. And be a blessing to me and to my people. Uh, in Genesis 14, we met Melchizedek, who was the uh, priest king, uh, king of righteousness, the king of, of peace. And we talked about how that relates to Jesus. We looked at the, the sermon of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And you just use that as an opportunity to say the whole Bible is about Jesus. So everything that you're seeing from Genesis 1-1, everything is about Jesus. It all points to him. Abram has his name changed to Abraham, and we see through his actions and through his faith and through his inaction and, and through some of his uh, sin that, uh, hey, our faith persuades others. Our obedience persuades others. And those statements are uh, morally neutral, right? Our lack of faith persuades people to think something about God, and our bold faith persuades others to think about something about God. So our faith and our obedience, they tell other people about our God. We should be cognizant of that, whether we're uh, portraying the the true things or not. So the story of Rebecca and saw that the Bible is not about us, but it is for us. And we thank the Lord for that. So the story of Jacob and Esau and asked, are we acting like children or are we acting like heirs to a father that's got a great feast for us? And then we've uh, looked uh, th- you know, throughout all of Jacob's struggles in life. We saw that he struggles with God and not against him. He struggles with God and seeks a blessing. He's trying to draw near to God. And so now we, uh, through the lineages and everything at, that we looked at in the end of chapter 36, uh, ch- end of chapter 35 and, and 36, we have these lineages, which again, the, the, the lineages are act breaks in the story. And so the act of Jacob is predominantly over. Jacob's still alive. He'll be part of the story going forward. But his story that's all about him as sort of the curtain's been kind of drawn on that. Now we're opening a new curtain on sort of a new set of stories, the sons of Jacob. All right, let's get right into the story. One thing that I don't think I mentioned last night, so just to kind of catch up, 
uh, from chapter 35 and verse 21. So if you want to start in chapter um, 25 and uh, 25 and verse 31. Uh, it says this, and it happened when Israel was encamped in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard. So very is one sentence. It's just kind of thrown in there. It's right at the end of sort of the Jacob stories and right before all the lineage stuff and that sort of the act break, but it's, it's just stuck right in there just so we'll remember it. We'll remember that it's happened. Uh, Bilha is Rachel's slave girl. She's the mother of Dan and Naphtali. And Reuben, of course, is the firstborn of all the sons of Jacob and, and therefore, of course, the oldest. So we'll talk a little bit more about Reuben uh, probably uh, tomorrow night. So before we get into the story, I want to talk ab about story for just a second, just in general. Uh, I'm a filmmaker, so I do a lot of writing in terms of screenplays and scripts for the various things that I'm filming, even if it's a uh, a fundraising video that I'm doing for somebody. There's there's a script. We sit down and we sort of flesh it out. And they all follow the same format, whether it's a documentary or a fundraising video or a short film or a feature film or an episode of television uh, or one of my books that I've written. They all follow this same sort of structure, what we call three-act structure. So you have act one, act two, act three, just very similar to a play. And the in broad strokes, three-act structure works like this. Act one, you're setting everything up. You're setting up the world, you're setting up the characters, setting up the premise of your story. Then you're going to take that world and you're going to turn it upside down. Then act two is all about trying to correct whatever that is that has turned the world upside down. Okay, your hero now wants something and this will spend the next you know, all of Act 2, trying to get it. And as Act 2 goes by, we'll see that the obstacles get bigger and the actions get bigger and the reactions get bigger, the conflict gets bigger, and everything rises sort of in Act 2. And then Act 3 is some sort of resolution. Most of the time, the world is set back right. Uh, if you're looking at something that's a tragedy, then the world is not set back right, and we still learn something from that as viewers or as hearers or as readers. So act one, act two, act three, act one is beginning, act two is the middle, act three is the end. And so we would say that's the setup, the confrontation, and the resolution. Okay, so setup, confrontation, resolution. This is basic three-act structure. I'm, I'm, I'm really giving just sort of a high view of everything here. Thick books have been written about all the details and particulars of three-act structure and all the variations on it and all that sort of thing. I'm not going to get into all that tonight. There's plenty out there. If you want to learn about that, you can do that. Uh, Robert McKee's story is a great book uh, to look at. Uh, Sid Field's screenplay is another great book. It has a lot of this kind of information in it. Okay, so set up. Then the world gets turned upside down. Confrontation, trying to right the world. And then some sort of resolution. Act one is generally about a quarter, about 25% of the story. Act two is generally about half the story. And act three is that last quarter of the story. So 25%, 50%, 25%. Okay. I lay all that out to say, we're reading a story. Genesis is a story. Now, at the very beginning of the series, I talked about how many people say, well, it's just a collection of stories of the beginning of things. And it's all these stories and they're from different authors and then from different times, and different places. And somebody stitched them all together. Okay, let's say that's true. Still, someone did stitch them all together. And it's clear through the language of Genesis, as we've seen these motifs run through every story, that at the very least, whoever the final redactor of this was to put all of these sort of oral stories together, 
the narrator is consistent from Genesis 1 all the way to Genesis 50. The narrator is consistent. So at some point, whether it was the original writing or whether it was the final redaction, at some point there was one storyteller that pulled all of this together. And uh, at some point, if you know, those of us who are believers believe that the Holy Spirit was involved in inspiring this process, whether it was the redaction or the original writing of it, or if someone sat down and wrote it from start to finish, full, fully inspired, we don't know the mechanics of it. We don't even know who wrote it. We don't know who the author is. But it is a story. And so even though it's real things that really happened, it's still written as a story. So we got to look at it in story terms. It's going to have, if it's a story, it's going to kind of have this three-act structure to it. And so we see that it does. We see that it has uh, a beginning. I mean, that's what Genesis 1 through 11 and sort of meeting Abraham is what that's all about. Then we have this confrontation where, where God goes through all these different stories with, with Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and trying to sort of write um, what all has been turned upside down in the sin and everything that's happened there in Act 1. And now the question is, are we going to find some kind of resolution in the end? So what we have, and I'm just going to show you just a little little um, text graphic here, is we have Act 1 is creation. Act 2 is struggle. We really talked about that word struggle with the stories of Jacob. So Act 1 is creation. Act 2 is struggle. What what will happen in Act 3? What what uh, what will come of the story? What 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 is Act Three going to be about? So uh, I want to show you one other uh, graphic here. So I'm going to go back to this and I'm going to show you this graphic. That's a story circle by a guy named Dan Harmon, who is a uh, television uh, show creator. He created the show Community, which uh, used to be on NBC, and he's got a current show called Rick and Morty, which I've never seen. It's kind of a crude uh, cartoon for adults and um, some of the younger viewers here may be very familiar with, with Rick and Morty. Um, Community was uh, a, a very sweet show. Uh, and when that show was on, Dan Harmon uh, came to be known for this, what you're looking at here on the screen. And it's called uh, the Story Circle. Everybody calls it Dan Harmon's Story Circle. Uh, the reality of it is uh, this, the, these ideas have been around for a long time. I mean, you're just looking at one more conception of, you know, Joseph Campbell's, uh, the, he, the hero's journey. Um, I mean, things that have been around for a very, very long time. And they're describing, again, they're describing story components, which stories have been around for, for a really, really, really long time. So if you go back to the oldest stories, such as the book of Genesis, you'll see these exact things playing out. I just use Dan Harmon's circle because I think it's, it's, Really good to look at. It's very easy to understand and very easy to apply. So here's the way the story works. It's, you kind of go around it clockwise. We start up at the 12 o'clock position with number one. So it begins, I'm just going to read it to you. The hero is in a zone of comfort. Number two, but they want something. Three, they enter an unfamiliar situation. So this is now that their world is turned upside down, right? So now we're moving into act two, right? So number uh, part four, they adapt to it. Part five, they get what they want. Part six, but they pay a heavy price for it. Part seven, they then return to their familiar situation. So now we're kind of coming into whatever the resolution is going to be. This is act three. Part eight, having changed. So you can see that even though this is a circle and not sort of linear, how we sort of laid out acts one, two, and three, you can kind of see acts one, two, and three here. So from one to three is act one, from three around to seven is act two, and from seven, uh, seven and eight, sort of back up to the one position, that is 
Act 3. And again, you see it works out. 25% for Act 1, 50%, the bottom half of the circle, 50% is Act 2, and 7 to 8, that last quarter is for Act 3, that last 25%. Okay, I'm trying try not to get too technical, but I do want you to kind of see the way the story is playing out here. Hero is in a zone of comfort. They want something, so they enter an unfamiliar situation and adapt to it. They get what they want, but they pay a heavy price for it. And then they return back to their familiar situation having changed. Okay, so remember, like I said before, the main character, the protagonist of a story, is going to be the one who changes, right? Donald Miller talks about story. And uh, in his story brand stuff, it's marketing things for companies. And he says, the hero is the weak character. The hero, the Luke Skywalker, the Harry Potter is the weak character in the beginning. That they grow to a place of strength is what makes them the main character. And it's the Obi-Wan, the Yodas, the ones who have knowledge, the one who has, has experience. They're the guides. They guide the hero through their change. They help the hero change, but the hero starts out as a very weak character and the story takes them to a place of strength. So again, the protagonist is the one who's leaving a zone of comfort, has to learn something and comes back changed. So I show you this because again, you can see here the way that uh, percentage sort of works out, the pie pieces. Genesis has 50 chapters. We're coming into chapter 37 tonight is where we're actually going to start reading chapter 37. Well, three quarters of the way through the story, almost exactly. So where does that put us? Almost three quarters of the way through the story. We're coming into the final episodes here. We're coming into the resolution. So again, we've looked at the story of Genesis and we've got to ask ourselves this question about the story structure. Creation is act one. Struggle is act two. What will act three bring? Well, there's one more part to this, and that is, if you recall, I've talked a little bit about Old Testament story structure, and it's not exactly like our modern day story structure. So I just sent out uh, another blog post today on my Substack blog, skidmore.substack.com, and it was uh, it's just a sampler of silent cinema. It's just some fun uh, clips from Charlie Chaplin and Harold Lloyd and Buster Keaton. Now at the bottom, there's a couple of bonuses. One of them is Great Train Robbery by Edwin S. Porter, 1903. This was uh, the first just real American movie and solidified the way movies were going to be made and stories were going to be told in America for a long time. And it has that beginning, middle, end structure. That's sort of our way of telling stories, beginning, middle, end. If you recall from early on in the series, I said Old Testament structure does it a little different. It does beginning, middle, beginning. We've talked about chiastic structure, how it starts at A, comes to a point of change where everything changes and works its way back to A, having changed, just like this graphic that we were looking at a moment ago. So when we come to Genesis and we're looking, we've, we've been through Act 1, we've been through pretty much all of Act 2, we're going into Act 3, we don't ask ourselves, beginning, middle, beginning, I'm sorry, beginning, middle, end, we, we know it's beginning, middle, beginning, all right? So we have creation, struggle, and then what? What is that? beginning going to look like the second time now that things are changed. All right, hold that in your mind. We're going to look at the text and we're going to kind of come back to that. We're going to go through 37, 38, 39. We're going to zip through it because we don't have a lot of time and because you know some of these stories uh, already. So we'll go right to Genesis chapter 37. We get into the story of Joseph. Okay, so we got the lineage of Jacob. We got Joseph who is 17 years old. He's one of the youngest uh, of his brothers. Benjamin, of course, is the youngest. 
And Joseph starts having these dreams. We're not going to read about the dreams. All of his brothers hate him because he's having these dreams that he's going to rule over them. So let's start in around verse 18 and see what happens and pay attention to some things that the text tells us that you may have never noticed before. So around verse 18 says, And they saw him from afar before he drew near to them, and they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to each other, here comes that dream master. And so now let us kill him and fling him into one of the pits. And we can say a vicious beast has devoured him. And we shall see what will come of his dreams. And Reuben heard. So if Reuben heard, that kind of means maybe he wasn't kind of in on that conversation. Because you got to remember, the brothers are all spaced out over time. Joseph is only 17. Reuben is a grown man, well into his adulthood by this point. right? So he's much older. So he's sort of the voice of reason as the older brother. He's coming in. Reuben heard and came to his rescue and said, we must not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, fling him into this pit in the wilderness and do not raise a hand against him. So he was saying, don't kill him, just put him in the pit. Why did he say that? Well, we see here that he might rescue him from their hands and bring him back to his father. So Reuben does not tell them he's planning on rescuing him from the pit. Keep reading. And it happened when Joseph came to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic the ornamented tunic, coat of many colors, that he had on him. And they took him and flung him into the pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread and they raised their eyes and saw that, look, they're, they're, once again, here in Genesis, that raising of the eyes and look, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead, their camels bearing gum and balm and ladinum on their way to take down to Egypt. Once again, that idea of Egypt being sort of an evil place. Remember, the first hearers of this would have been post-Egypt, post right? Post-Exodus. And Judah said to his brothers, what gain is there if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? So remember, at this point, Joseph's already in the pit, right? Judah says, uh, what gain is it if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and our hand will not be against him, for he's our, he's our, our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. And Midianite merchantmen passed by and pulled Joseph up out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they brought Joseph to Egypt. And Reuben came back to the pit and look, Joseph was not in the pit and he rent his garments. So again, pay attention. Reuben is not with his brothers when they sell Joseph. Reuben doesn't know what's happened. He comes back and just sees that he's gone. According to the text, it's unclear whether he knows what's happened to, to Joseph. Apparently he doesn't. He sees he's not in the pit and he rents his, he rends his garments. And he came back to his brothers, again, showing he's not with them. Came back to his brothers and he said, the boy is gone. And where can I turn? And they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a kid, that is a young goat, and slaughtered a kid and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the ornamented tunic and had it brought to their father. And they said, this we found recognize prey. It's some archaic kind of language, but it's a direct translation out of the Hebrew. It just means, look, don't you recognize this? Please look at this. Recognize prey. Is it your son's tunic or not? Notice they don't make a comment about what happened. They just said, we found this. Is it your son's? Recognize prey, they say. And he recognized it. Uh, Jacob recognized it. And he said, it is my son's tunic. And then, I don't know about your version, in my version, the next a uh, couple of lines are set off as verse, as a song. A vicious beast has devoured him. Joseph is torn to shreds. You can hear it almost reads like a like a song or like a limerick or something, right? Like some kind of poem. This is Jacob in his very overdramatic uh, form, which he no doubt got from uh, his mother. 
as we saw in the earlier stories. And he's being super overdramatic and uh, calling these sort of melodramatic uh, poems uh, at seeing what has happened to his son. Now, who says Joseph was killed by a vicious beast? Jacob. Jacob's the one who says it. Now, clearly he's meant to think that since there's blood on the tunic, but the brothers never say what happened. They just say, hey, we found this. Jacob's the one that invents the story and they let him believe it. And so let's keep reading. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth around his waist and mourned for his son for many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose to console him. And he refused to be consoled. And he said, rather, I will go down to my son in Sheol mourning. And his father keened for him. All of that's one sentence, right? You just see just the ongoing, ongoing. He's just being melodramatic about the whole thing. Uh, but the Midianites had sold him in, uh, into Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's courtier, the high chamberlain. So once again, Genesis ends the story on sort of a, cliffhanger kind of note. All right. Chapter 38. This is another not for VBS kind of story. Okay. This is the story of Judah and Tamar. So again, a lot of people say, well, it's a collection of stories. This Judah and Tamar story is a great example because what does this have to do with anything? It's just crammed right here in the middle of the Joseph story. We're trying to read about Joseph. Suddenly we get this weird story about Judah and Tamar. Nobody cares about the story. Let's move on to the rest of Joseph. I'm here to show you why there's a big mistake. Let's look at chapter 38. Uh, and it happened at this time that Judah went down from his brothers. So Judah goes off by himself, pitched his tent by an Adulamite named Hirah. And Judah saw there the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. What's the problem here? Remember, Canaanites. Canaan comes from Ham. Ham, who sinned against his father. Canaan is probably the product of the incestuous rape of, his, of Ham's own mother. And so... Canaanite people, off-limits. Canaanite wives, off-limits. Judah takes a Canaanite wife. Big problem. He has two sons. Skipping down a little bit, paraphrasing. He has two sons. Uh, the first son takes a wife named Tamar. Um, it says, Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So Judah says to Onan, the second, come to uh, bed with your brother's wife and do your duty as brother-in-law for, for her and raise up seed for your brother. So this makes no sense to us, but in the ancient time, in the time of Genesis and, and beyond, when you had uh, an unmarried brother, if the first brother died before there were any children, because remember, the lineage comes down through the firstborn. So if the firstborn brother dies before he has a male child, then the next unmarried brother must come in and know the wife so that she will conceive and bear a son. When that son is born, it belongs to the dead brother, not to the one who conceived it. This is, this is old Eastern practice of the, the people of this era. And in fact, you see this even in the New Testament when the Sadducees come up to Jesus. They're trying to ask him some kind of question about resurrection. And they ask him about this, this man who had seven brothers and everybody died. And so uh, you see that even taking place, that idea persisting in the time of Jesus. That's what they're talking about here. Well, Onan doesn't want to have sons for his brother. He wants to have his own sons. So, and Onan knew that seed would not be his, knew that the seed would not be his. So when he would come to bed with his brother's wife, he would waste his seed on the ground. So to give no seed for his brother. So again, in the Hebrew, that idea of seed being played with as a metaphor and being quite graphic and literal. And he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he put him to death as well. And Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, stay a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my third son, is grown up. For he thought, lest he too die like his brothers. So the narrator is letting us know some narrative irony here. Judah has no intention of letting Sheila anywhere near this girl, right? 
But he tells her something different. Go home and just be a widow. And Tamar went and stayed at her father's house. She does what, you know, waits on the brother. That's sort of in her culture. That's what she's supposed to do. She goes home and does what she's supposed to do culturally. And a long time passed. So again, remember, there's lots, a big span of time happening here. In fact, this story might begin or end before or after the stories before or after it, right? But narratively, story-wise, it's put right here for a very important reason. We're about to see why. And a long time passed, and the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. So the Canaanite wife died. The sons that he's had by the Canaanite woman, they're dead, except for uh, Shelah, this third son, right? Um, <clears throat> and after the mourning period, Judah went up to his sheep shearers. He, with Hirah the Adulamite, his friend, this is the guy he's living next to, uh, they go to this place called Timnah. And Tamar was told, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garb, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself, and sat by the entrance to, to where they were going, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. So she knows that the son's grown up, and she's, she's caught on. This is not going to happen for me. And Judah saw her and took her for a whore, because she had a veil on. That was the idea. Is she's a prostitute. Took her for a whore, for she had covered her face. And he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here, pray, let me come to bed with you. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me for coming to bed with me? She's pretending to be the prostitute. Right? And he said, I personally will send a kid from the flock, a kid that is a young goat. Hmm. <clears throat> and she said, Only if you give a pledge till you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and cord and the staff in your hand. So seal and cord, this was a wax seal kind of thing. This is basically the driver's license of the day. She's basically saying, Give me your ID, give me your walking staff, things that are very clearly yours. And he gave them to her, and he came to bed with her, and she conceived by him. And she rose and went away and took off the veil she was wearing and put on her widow's garb. And Judah sent the kid, that is the young goat, by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, uh, to take the pledge back from the woman's hand, but he could not find her. And he asked the men of the place, saying, where's the cult harlot, the one by the road? And they said, there has been no cult harlot here. And he returned to Judah and said, I, I could not find her. And the men of the place said, there has been no cult harlot here. And Judah said, well, let her take them, lest we be a laughing stock. Again, this idea of laughing coming into uh, Genesis. Lest we be a laughing stock. Look, I sent this kid, that is to say a young goat. And you could not find her. And it happened about three months later that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the whore, and what's more, she's conceived by her whoring. And Judah said, it's two words in Hebrew, take her and burn her. It's just no hesitation. He just immediately cast judgment on her. Continuing, out she was taken. So there, people are obeying Judah's word. They're going to do it. They're about to burn her. Out she was taken. When she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I have conceived. And she said, Recognize, pray. Well, we heard that before. Recognize, pray. Whose are this seal and cord and this staff? And Judah recognized them, and he said, She is more in the right than I. For have I not failed to give her Shelah, my son? And he knew her again no more. And it happened at the time she gave birth that, look, there were twins in her womb. Another theme in Genesis. And it happened as she gave birth that one put out his hand and the midwife took it and bound a scarlet thread on his hand to say, this one came out first. And as he was drawing back his hand, look, out came his brother. 
And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. And she called his name Perez, which means to break out. And afterward, out came his brother, on whose hand was the scarlet thread, and she called his name Zerah. Zerah means dawn, and you can picture like the red dawn. So here you have, he's got the scarlet thread, sort of the red dawn. This is, again, just calling back to that Jacob and Esau, that struggle. So you have Jacob and Esau before the Judah and Tamar story. You have Jacob and Esau after. Very quickly, we're going to summarize the story that happens in Genesis 39. So moving on to Genesis 39, Joseph's brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar... Uh, brings him into his house, puts him in charge of a lot of things. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. She says, lie with me, which in the Hebrew is just two words, two very clear, distinct graphic words. And he refuses and he gives sort of this explanation of why he's not going to do it. And it's just sort of this breathless run on sentence of 35 words. It's just, you can see the, just the pure Joseph uh, stammering over his words as he's trying to ward off the advances of this very direct woman who is in charge of his life. And when he continues to refuse, she grabs him, he runs away, and she's left holding his garment. And she lays the garment out. And she uses the garment to show uh, in her deception what an evil person Joseph is, what this thing is Joseph has done. Okay, we'll stop there story-wise. So again, we have to ask ourselves about this Judah and Tamar story. Why is it here? We're in the story of Joseph. What do we care about Judah? I mean, he's not even, we listed the top five people a minute ago that would have been in, you know, the main characters of Genesis. We got Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph. Judah's not on that list. Well, why is the story about J Judah here? When you see so much before and after this story of Judah and Tamar, so many similarities. Remember when I said you see similarities, put them next to each other, kind of see the contrast, and you'll notice that there's some sort of story being told here. There's something the story is trying to tell you. In the story of uh, Joseph being sold away by his brothers, you have a garment, his coat of many colors. You have a deception with a young goat. They dip the coat in the blood of the goat. Recognize prey, they say to their father. And it ties Judah specifically to the disappearance of Joseph. It's Judah. He's the one who has the idea, right? In chapter 39, Joseph and the and Potiphar's wife, you have, once again, a garment, Joseph's garment. You have sexual impropriety. You have uh, just, um, you have um, this pure Joseph that contrasts with Judah and Judah's sexual impropriety in the story of Judah and Tamar. And so right in the middle of these two stories, you have Judah and Tamar, where she changes her garments. There's a deception with a young goat. Right, he tries to give her a goat in order for there's this deception involved. She's deceiving him, and he's doing this thing he's not supposed to do. She shows him about his sin and says, "Recognize prey." Probably trigger words for him, since he's probably the one who said them the chapter before to his father. Recognize prey. Now it's being said to him about his sin, and it ties Judah specifically with the great sin against Joseph. All the brothers have a role to play, but it really puts Judah at the helm. The story does. So something has happened in the story of Judah and Tamar that you may not have noticed. And this is why Judah is at the center of this story. Judah, in the story of Judah and Tamar, takes responsibility for his sin and changes his behavior. That's a big deal in Genesis. Think about 
Noah, who's kind of basically good, but then he's getting drunk sort of at the end and kind of just killing stuff willy-nilly. Uh, you got Abraham, who he's believing, trusting in the Lord, and that's credited to him as righteousness. And he's still lying about who his wife is and still sometimes not trusting. But he doesn't change, really. You know, he's mostly good, but he doesn't change. People who are evil, like Cain, they don't change. They just run away. People who are evil, like Ham, they just get cursed and they run off and get worse, you know. So people who are kind of generally good, kind of stay generally good, but also still sinners. And people who are definitely sinners and just nothing but sinners, they don't, they don't change. This is the first person in Genesis, the first character in Genesis who has taken responsibility for his sin. And, and then it says he, he lied with her no more. He knew her no more, right? He changes his behavior. It's the first person takes responsibility for his sin and changes his behavior. Big, big deal. This is the character. This is the protagonist. This is the main character. This is the character who changes. I mean, even if you know the story of Joseph and you sort of think through, he goes through a lot of things, but Joseph, we just saw in chapter 39, he's a good kid. You know, now he's a little mouthy in 37 when he's talking about his dreams or whatever, but he's a good kid. He's a good kid in 39. He grows up to be a good man, does good things. We'll see more about that as we look the next night or two, but he's good. He kind of basically stays good. Judah is the one who changes. Okay. Why? Why is Judah the main character? Of Genesis. What sense does that make? Nobody cares about Judah. Why is Judah the main character? Well, think about it again when this was written. It was written after the Exodus. What's the biggest tribe after the Exodus? It's Judah. Bezalel, who builds the tabernacle, the house of God. What tribe is he from? He's from Judah. Later on, King David. What tribe does King David come from? From Judah. Jesus Christ. What tribe does Jesus Christ come from? He's from the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The When all the other nations, the, all the little sub-nations of Israel, when they all get assimilated and, and run off and, and uh, wiped out by Assyria and all this, who's left? It's the nation of Judah. It's, that's all that's left. So of course, of course, Judah would be the main character of Genesis. Of course he would. And everything that we've looked at before this that doesn't have Judah in it is just setting us up for this moment. When Adam sins, when Noah sins, when Abraham lies, when Cain kills his brother, when Ham does what he does, when Jacob is going through all the struggle and turmoil, all of those things set us up for this moment, for this character of Judah to recognize his sin and take responsibility for it. First time that's ever happened in Genesis, and that's why he's the main character. So what we see when we go back to that story structure of Genesis, and we're looking at creation, struggle, what is it? What we're looking at, beginning, middle, beginning, what we're going to be looking at is a beginning, a middle, and a new beginning. When seeing this change in Judah, we have the hope that maybe Things can be put right. Because once sin, since sin has been introduced in Genesis 3, we've seen no hope. But now here's someone who takes responsibility and makes a change. And now there's a hope for a new beginning. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.